Welcome to another podcast of White Collar Crimes, the podcast where we show you the only color that truly matters in our criminal justice system is green. Your host, Ryan Horn, glad to have you aboard as always. We're going to take an interesting look on this episode, and you know, first of all, before I even get going on that, I do want to offer up our prayers and concerns and everyone for in the St. Louis area and uh, eastern Kentucky and areas of such that uh, things get better for them soon. Uh, they've really been hit with some flooding, which is kind of unusual here in the Midwest and southern part of the U.S. I would say most of the summer has been extremely dry. You know, in fact, you know, in St. Louis and southern Illinois, where I'm at in this area, the last uh, was just a few weeks ago. They were, you know, talking more about drought conditions and things we've had. And suddenly this week, it's Really made up for lost time. A lot of rain in this area, but especially up there, you know, St. Louis had some record rainfall the other night. Massive amounts of flooding, uh, pet shelters that, you know, are overwhelming. And please check out the uh, St. Clair, Illinois, St. Clair County, Illinois Pet Shelter website if you want to donate. They are in need of donations. I will post that on our Facebook page as well. But uh, please be sure and help. And uh, our prayers go out to all those in that situation. But tonight, or today, depending on when you hear this, it's a different kind of episode. We're going to cover one, and this is one I mentioned last week that my wife referred to me and asked me to do, and I'm, you know, I thought it was a pretty interesting case, so looked into it a little bit, and we're going to discuss Sylvan Sklonik, a.k.a. Cherry Hills Fats, and that's his nickname, and there's a very good reason for it, because during his Offending days, he weighed between 650 and 700 pounds. I will say probably the world's largest white-collar criminal, certainly the largest that we have covered on this show. And, you know, it goes along with what I've said early on in this podcast when it started last year. You know, white-collar criminals come in all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, economic background, you know, and it's that way for crime in general. But white-collar crime is no different. Now, granted, you know, you don't see a lot of white-collar criminals this size. This is one that we uh, are going to feature on this one. Now, not really a whole lot is known about his early life. I, You know, I wasn't able to really find a whole lot that was out there about it. Um, he was said to have been born in 1930 in Philadelphia to Jewish parents. He... Uh, he was, by all accounts, I've read that's where he was born. However, I did see, I think, at least one reference that he might have been born in California as well. But the overwhelming majority of things written about him say he was born in Philadelphia, and that's where, you know, a lot of his roots were at. So, you know, by most accounts, that's where he's from. But a lot's not known about him. There's not much said about his early education, you know, where he went to high school. Nothing mentioned about college or anything of that sort, and again, he had the nickname Cherry Hills Fats, and it fit, and you know, when I saw the Fats nickname on that, it kind of made me and reminded me of Minnesota Fats, Uh, some of you older folks that listen to this might remember him, he's a famous pool player, and reason I can remember him is uh, when I was younger, you know, he was famous, I think he was from New York originally, but he ended up settling and moving over here in Ducoin, Illinois, which is in southern Illinois, and, you know, was probably about, I don't know, maybe 40, 45 minutes away from where I grew up at, and, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to have a player there. I'm not really sure how he had that nickname, because he wasn't fat, but, uh, 
you know, this guy, uh, it certainly did fit him um, by every, you know, stretch of the imagination. You know, when you're talking 650 to 700 pounds, that's a pretty large white-collar criminal. Uh, he was listed as a writer by profession, so, you know, at that size, I guess that's, you know, understandable. I didn't probably think he was going to do, you know, I mean, you know, some type of, you know, physical labor job or anything like that because, you know, he certainly wouldn't be in health to probably do that. But as far as his white-collar crimes go, he had a variety of crimes that he was involved in. Uh, he was reported to have engaged in credit card fraud, mortgage fraud, insurance fraud, blackmail, home improvement fraud, and a variety of others. So, uh, you know, some of the white-collar criminals we focus on on this show are, you know, one-trick ponies, maybe, as the term goes, have maybe one little uh, area of specialty, but uh, not Cherry Hills Fats. He went uh, went right at it and had a wide variety of it. He was kind of the utility player in baseball of white-collar crime, had a lot of specialties. And he was known to also work and dabble in the entertainment industry some, and we'll be a little bit more on that in a little bit, but he had a lot of connections in a lot of places. Now, among the crimes that finally caught up with him and got him in trouble and landed him to do a little bit of time was that of bankruptcy fraud in a bankruptcy that he had filed. And, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of that, but it does happen sometimes. You know, people that declare bankruptcy, you know, especially if it's a high-profile case, it's probably going to get some auditing and some scrutiny to make sure and look how accurate you are in what you've disclosed. And if you, you know, intentionally falsify something, you know, bankruptcies go through federal court, you know, you could be looking at uh, some charges. And that's what happened here. Apparently, uh, the bankruptcy even that he declared was fraudulent. Now, like I said, you don't hear a whole lot about that as a white-collar crime, but it does happen. We had a case a while back that we mentioned that, um, and I don't recall right now off the top of my head which one it was, but we had one a few weeks back where uh, that was actually one of the things that person ended up getting convicted for, you know, among a litany of other crimes. But it does happen. You don't see it a whole lot. Um, I would say most of the people who file bankruptcy are certainly not wealthy and, you know, have anything to hide, so it doesn't, you know, get probably a lot of scrutiny, but... Again, if you're a high-profile person, you know, and a person of wealth and connections and things like that, it may get a little bit more scrutiny, and that's probably certainly what happened in his case. Now, he operated a lot of his financial crimes in South Florida. You know, again, not not a lot is known about him. It's not really known when he set up shop or located down there, um, you know, because there's reports and things of also that he kept connections in Philadelphia area and continued to operate in there as well. But one of the big things he set up during this time when he's operating in Florida was a he chartered a bank and in Channel Island and it was, you know, probably a cool thing to have your own bank. Uh but you know, come to find out what they found out later, this uh bank was not really real. And he was taking the deposits people put into this bank and kept them for himself. You know, and probably one of the many reasons why a lot of people just don't trust banks in general. You know, I know a lot of that goes back to the Great Depression days when a lot of people lost everything they had. You know, this, you know, prior to the Great Depression days, this is uh, prior to the FDIC, you know, federal deposit protection that you have now, which, you know, basically will protect your account up to $100,000, which that was in play at this time. 
But, you know, the point being, I can understand when you see things like this happen, maybe why people, there are people out there that don't trust banks. And that's exactly what he did when people made a deposit in his bank. He just simply kept it for himself and laundered it on through because the bank was not really real or solvent. So, uh, you know, bank fraud was another area of expertise. You know, a very multi-talented criminal, Mr. Cherry Hills Fats was. Now, like I said, in 1966, he was sent to prison for five years, roughly, for bankruptcy fraud. And he was released later, sent out on probation, parole. And it's reported that during this time, he became an active informant. And, you know, for those of you that maybe don't know what I'm talking about, these are criminals who sometimes in exchange for a little uh, less scrutiny from the police, for lack of better words, they provide information about other criminals. They provide tips, things like that, that help lead to arrests and you know, bring other criminals down. One of the most famous informant cases we found out was that of the the gangster Whitey Bulger, if you remember that from a few years back. You know, it was revealed later, you know, that he was getting away with a massive amount of crime because he was an FBI informant. And the FBI kept, you know, local law enforcement and prosecutors off his heels, supposedly in exchange for information. And, uh, you know, while he provided this information, he happened to be committing massive amounts of crimes, you know, murder for hire, drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, you name it. Very vicious and uh, ruthless criminal that was able to get away with a lot of what he was doing for a lot of years because he provided information as an informant. And, you know, the movie, if you've ever seen the movie The Departed, that's with uh, Jack Nicholson and Matt Damon. That's You can tell if you know anything about the story of Whitey Bulger and FBI agent John Connolly. It's very loosely based off that. You can tell it's inspired off that. And, you know, it was come to account then, Jack Nicholson's character, the mobster, Mr. Costello, you know, they find out, well, he's an informant for the FBI, and that's how he was getting away with massive amounts of violent crime and drug trafficking and you name it. You know, and I can remember when I started in as a probation officer a few years back there, you know, at first it would surprise me that sometimes we'd have people violating probation and, you know, we were reporting this and, you know, for whatever reason, the you know, state was not revoking their probation and bringing them in. I had a supervisor at the time tell me, he said, you know, we don't ever know, but it's possible that person might be acting as an informant. And that's why they're backing off and cutting that person some slack. They could be providing some really big information. And therefore, you know, that's why they're backing off and letting that person do their thing. So he began to kind of become an informant with the police at that time. And apparently he was pretty good at that. You know, in addition to being a good criminal and a swindler, he was also apparently a pretty good informant. Um, In fact, they said over the years, his tips led uh, to the arrests of approximately maybe 100 different criminals. Uh, So whatever information he provided, it was, you know, pretty, pretty valuable. And during this time, it was also said, and really throughout his, you know, life, he maintained ties to various organized crime figures in South Florida, Philadelphia, in these areas there. Uh, He was known to have some very strong associations with a lot of high-profile Jewish and Italian mafia figures in Philadelphia and South Florida. And by having these mafia ties and also working as a police informant, he really kind of had all of his bases covered, which would be maybe why he was really good at all these different schemes and frauds he had going and was able to steal millions of dollars. Now, it's not really sure total how much he ripped people off from, but it was in the millions, make no mistake about it, even, you know, back then. We're talking in the 60s and 70s. 
but he was very good at it. And again, you know, he had the mafia to help him work with him and network. And, you know, by doing his informant, informing work, he was able to, uh, you know, keep law enforcement at bay, so to speak, as well. So he kind of really had both bases covered to, you know, carry on with his schemes. And, you know, it kept him shielded and protected. And, you know, I thought, too, it probably didn't hurt that he really just didn't look like your standard, typical white-collar criminal. And again, you know, I said earlier, and it's true, you know, white-collar criminals, like like criminals in general, there's no one specific type. They come in all ages, sizes, colors, creeds, economic class, you know, you name it. But, you know, if you've listened to this podcast for a while or if you've watched American Greed or any of the shows that focus on white-collar crime, there's just not a whole lot of stories about 650 or 700-pound white-collar criminals. So... He's not somebody that probably to look at on the surface you would think would have the capabilities and time to really do that. You know, when I see somebody that large, I just figure they're, they've got to be battling health problems all the time. And that's what's going to keep their focus and attention at all times. You know, not that during that time they're plotting and mastering a scheme to rip me off. But that's exactly, you know, what he was doing. So, yeah, he didn't look like the average white collar criminal. And I don't know, maybe people saw him as just kind of a big, uh, you know, jolly teddy bear, big Santa Claus, you know, that kind of thing, you know, uh, you know, just a big oaf and that, you know, people didn't really feel threatened by him, you know, because again, that's one of the aspects of white collar crime. You have to have that aspect of trust. You have to have the victim engage in some form and relationship of trust with the person that ripped them off. That is a key component of white collar crime. And, you know... Certainly people might have uh, just felt like, you know, he was a charmer and somebody that they could just basically trust because he did manage to, as I said, bilk people, tons of people out of millions of dollars over the years. And it also included blackmail. Apparently he was pretty good at blackmail. Um, he staged some banks, bank break-ins, you know, other types of burglaries. I think even, you know, some burglary counts was what he also, he originally went to prison for back uh, earlier when he did his time in prison. And I can imagine how tough that might have been just to even find a jumpsuit for somebody that size. I can remember my days working in corrections, and, you know, we had some big guys that came through there sometime, but I don't remember anybody ever being 650 to 700 pounds, so I don't even know where how we would even house somebody like that, but I guess they found a way one way or other, but, you know, I imagine they'd have to have some pretty good uh, size jumpsuits for that, and, uh, you know, just not something you encounter every day in probably a lot of professions to meet somebody that large, but, uh, he was, and as I said, he was a writer, and when he was in prison, he even wrote a memoir about his crimes called False Name Big Cherry, The Confessions of a Master Criminal. I guess he self-styled, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, proud of himself to, you know, brag about himself being a, quote, master criminal. Now, this was released in 1973, you know, probably about a year or two after he had been released from prison. So he writes these memoirs when he's in here. As I said earlier, that was one of his apparent skills was writing, one of his listed occupations. In fact, uh, it was said that he earlier in the 1960s, roughly early 1960s, he had been a writer for the Merv Griffin show. That was a famous, uh, what do you want to call it, a variety show, I guess, for lack of better words, it was on at that time, and uh, he was one of the writers for it, so, you know, again, he had some connections in the entertainment industry as well, and, 
You know, maybe being a good writer allowed him to know how to use words and smooth things over. I'd say it probably didn't hurt, and it's probably a tool that came in very handy to help him out during these times. But he releases these memoirs, talks about his crimes and different types of things he does. And like I said, you know, it's a skill I'm sure that certainly came in handy for him. And it's not known really how much more involved he got into crime. It's, you know, most likely he certainly probably picked up right where he left off when he got out. So many of these do so many times when they get out. But whatever the case was, in 1976, September of 1976, he was found dead at his home of a heart attack at the age of 46. And, you know, really, I guess it's kind of, you know, fortunate for him to even live that long because when you weigh 650 to 700 pounds, you know, even living to age 46 is going to be a challenge. Um, Here in Illinois, not far from me, about two hours where I'm at, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Alton, Illinois, which is near St. Louis. It's a home of Robert Wadlow, who was was the world's tallest man. And uh, I can't remember his exact height, but, you know, he only lived to be about 21, 22, something like that because of the health problems that came along with it. So, uh, you know, this having this kind of a size, you know, can certainly come with some problems, and it did with him. And, you know, not too surprisingly, he died of a heart attack. I mean, like I said, I'm kind of really surprised he made it to uh, even age 46, you know, with a size like that. So who knows, most likely, like I always say, you know, he probably would have continued to offend and probably would have continued to, you know, swindle people. He was really good at it. And, you know, again, I'm sure a lot of people didn't think of him threat, find him threatening and, you know, probably trusted him, probably just saw him as a, you know, big, fat, jolly guy and, you know, uh, no threat to me. And, well, you know, come to find out, as we do often many times on this, they are and you know these uh, white collar criminals can be every bit as predatory as street criminals that we see you know just unfortunately they don't do a lot of time you know I mean he did at least five years during his life which is a lot more than you know a lot of other white collar criminals ever do but uh, you know probably compared to the amount of people and the amount of money that he ripped off and did damage to even that's you know most likely he probably got a pretty pretty light sentence in all in what he did but you know, we know for sure with him dying that young, he was not going to be able to reoffend again, but his story lives on. And I guess I may even check out, I may have to see if it's on, uh, you know, thriftbooks.com or one of these uh, book websites that, you know, sell some cheap books. I wouldn't mind taking a look at it. We might do a little follow-up on it again because, you know, it is. there's not really a lot out despite this case, but, you know, I'm hopefully my wife's listening to this at some point, and, you know, this was her idea, and I think it was a really good suggestion because it's kind of cool to do one, you know. This is my first one on this, you know, someone of this size, and when he died at this time, he was estimated to be over 700 pounds or right at about 700 pounds. So, again, to my knowledge, the world's largest white-collar criminal. So... So stay tuned with us for next week. We hope you can come back and join us. We always enjoy having you here. Um, And if you have an idea for a show like this, you don't have to be my wife. Uh, Just uh, message me on our Anchor FM page. You can email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. You can, uh, you know, uh, follow us on our Facebook page and, you know, make a recommendation to me on that page as well. Um, you know, and as I always say too, if you need any voiceover services, I'm always glad to provide those. You can check out my website at ryan-horn.com. Uh, pretty excited today. I actually signed with an audio book company. Hopefully have some 
audiobook gigs coming here soon that I can uh, promote and announce to you. I recently did one for the We Hear app, um, so hopefully get some more with this going. Uh, as I always say, you know, support your local pet shelter. Check out that Facebook page. We will have the uh, information listed on the St. Clair, Illinois page. It's in need of a lot of help right now with the flooding and things like that. And, you know, always adopt your best friend there. And, you know, I will say, too, if you're out there in law enforcement, military, and defending our rights and freedom, we thank you. And thank you for those of you that are out there investigating and trying to take down these white-collar criminals who are preying on our friends and family. We salute you, too. And as I always say, be sure and watch out for everybody, especially the elderly. They are certainly the ones that are victimized uh, most oftentimes in these. So, Again, we thank you, and uh, we look forward to having you back here again next week. God bless, and take care, everybody.